Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? I am embracing the day. It is a beautiful Sunday here. I started it out right. Get into that in a little while. Oh, God. But really looking forward. It's a beautiful day here. It's like 45, 48 degrees out. The sun's shining. The snow's all melted. I've got... Uh, a rack of lamb that's marinating in the refrigerator for later on. I'm going to do a little goose hunting when we're done with this show. I mean, this is going to be a fantastic day, and there's nothing you can do to change that fact. Nothing. I'm ready. Bring it. So let's talk about it. January 25th, 1997, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. It's uh, S-O-U-L-E-D, not S-O-L-D. Uh, 5,120 fans on hand, paid over $68,000. They got roughly 170,000 pay-per-view buys. It's a rare Saturday pay-per-view, not a Sunday pay-per-view. It does feel like, uh, the natural progression of things, because we've talked about here on the show for a while that later in the year, when you're tasked with thunder, you're going to start to think, Hey, maybe the idea is let's have a WCW show and then let's have a NWO show. And maybe the way to do that is to have some stakes at a pay-per-view Thunder goes one way, Nitro goes another. So it feels like, okay, I could get behind them trying an NWO pay-per-view. But when did it first come up? Because that conversation about Thunder isn't going to happen until towards the latter half of the year. Here we are in January of 97. When did somebody first say, hey, what if we did an NWO show? Well, that somebody was me um, right off the bat. And that's that. Uh, the, the idea started probably ricocheting around inside of my skull in late 96. You know, we, we obviously had experienced a tremendous amount of growth in 96. I think our, our profit, depending on who you want to believe internally was around four or $5 million for 1996 was, was, which was like a thousand percent more than projected for 96. So we clearly knew we had lightning in a bottle and the idea, the very basic idea of creating warring factions and, and eventually allowing NWO to have its own pay-per-views and its own special editions of Nitro was something that, you know, I started formulating and thinking about, like I said, probably last half of 96. Now, coincidentally, as you pointed out, you pointed it out correctly, you know, the, the prospect of actually producing Thunder, I, nobody knew that that was going to come our way. Right. That that was a manifestation of all the success that we had on TNT, and it was a Ted Turner decision, Ted Turner exclusively, despite the fact that nobody else in the executive committee, none of the – including the president of Turner Broadcasting at the time, Terry McGurk, uh, Scott Sassa, you know, Brad Siegel, nobody wanted to do Thunder. But at this point in January of 97, that challenge, that mission didn't really exist. What existed was, wow, we've got NWO, which was clearly, you know, at war with WCW, creatively speaking. That was the premise of it. The premise of NWO, the very premise of Scott Hall and Kevin Nash coming over was to get revenge because they weren't treated fairly when they were previously in WCW prior to going to the WWF. Now that they became big stars, they're coming back to, 
exact their revenge on WCW and the people that didn't treat them with the respect they deserved. That was the very premise of the NWO. And of course, it started to build after that. We didn't know it was going to be as successful as it became. But once that became obvious in 96, the ideas had already been, you know, like I said, ricocheting around on my head that we were eventually going to split the two brands. So when you first have this idea for an NWO show, is it a matter of, you know, where and when, why is January? Why Cedar Rapids? Uh, talk to me about, you know, the date and the location selection here. Well, you know, venue selection was more often than not a, a function of what's available, right? You know, you go through the list of, you know, venues, that are in decent wrestling markets that the WWF hasn't recently been to or are recently or are soon to be going to. So, you know, you kind of, the first thing you have to do is look at what's your competition doing. You clearly don't want to book a pay-per-view in a building where WWF at that time was within, you know, a couple hundred miles, you know, a week or two weeks or even a month or two before. So you're, you're looking at where's the competition, what are they doing, what are they doing it, Okay, that probably excludes, you know, a certain amount of markets. Um, You're looking for a a venue that is large enough that you can attract a great crowd for television. Because, again, keep in mind, at this point, it's still early. We're still, even though we had great success in 96, it's brand new to us. Right. We, we still weren't selling out, you know, consistently. Our live events weren't doing, you know, as well as they were doing by the latter half of 97 and early 98. We were still growing. We were still in a, in a, in a growth mode here. So we were looking for venues, to get back to the venue question, we were looking at venues who that were big enough, 7,000, 8,000, 10,000, in markets that didn't have unions because that was a really expensive proposition. Um, where we knew we could get a good wrestling audience that hasn't, that hadn't been burned, you know, meaning we hadn't been there so many times it didn't matter anymore. So Cedar Rapids worked and I've always liked markets like Cedar Rapids. I've always liked markets in the Midwest, probably because I started there, but from my perspective and Zane Brezloff, you know, and I were very, um, we were on the same page about this. It was always much better to go to a market like Cedar Rapids that typically didn't get a lot of entertainment. You know, the Rolling Stones didn't come through <laughs> Cedar Rapids, Iowa. You know, a lot of things don't go to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. But when wrestling, particularly televised wrestling, like Nitro, and as hot as we were, coming to a smaller market like Nitro was a little bit like the Rolling Stones coming. So we just felt like that was a safe uh, yet ideal location in terms of the kind of crowd we could draw. So let's talk about, you know, the look, the feel, the, the spelling, you know, S O U L E D. And then, you know, the black and white open, uh, some of those, uh, design elements, the creative pieces, is that also you, or is there a bigger influence there? Oh, no, there was a lot of people involved in that. And again, you, you have to kind of go back to early 96, you know, when, we on the fly almost while we we're at Disney MGM studios trying to come up with, you know, the logo, the look, the feel, you know, the brand image, if you will, of, of the NWO. And that's where the NWO logo and the t-shirts and the black and white and that unique style of interview that we were doing, which up to that point had never been done before. Um, and it was almost out of necessity in a way not to go back to, 
to the beginning of the NWO. But, you know, the style, the look, the feel of what you see here in in Sold Out of, of 97 really all started in Orlando in, in July of 96. Um, and that was, you know, Craig Leathers was very much involved in that. Neil Pruitt. Obviously, you know, the voice of the NWO was as a producer was very involved in it. Kemper Rogers was very involved in it. There were a lot of people involved and a lot of um, vendors, you know, as well. You know, we worked with Disney MGM Studios design and, and you know, kind of explained to them the premise of the NWO, just like I did at the beginning of this show, and let them come back to us with that kind of um, – uh, you know, the rebel tine, type of vibe and the um, the anti-corporate kind of vibe, you know, a little bit of, with a little dash of anarchy thrown in there just to, to make it interesting and feel different. We would give them those general kind of broad-based descriptions of what the NWO represents. And then the, the folks at Disney working with Craig and Neil and others would come back to us with a bunch of ideas. But the original idea came out of that kind of – thought process and, and that effort going way back to July. Now, how we extended that, you know, to sold out, I had, you know, there were some things I wanted to try. Neil Pruitt by this point was really grabbing the bull by the horns and coming up with a lot of great ideas. He really loved it. Um, the presentation of the original NWO going back, you know, into 96 and he just, he understood it. He, it, he just really, really got it. And he was responsible for a lot of the stuff that we see on this pay-per-view from a visual point of view, not from a wrestling match point of view and a creative point of view, storytelling and things like that. But in terms of the look, the feel, the vibe, you know, I was instrumental in much of it. Um, but Neil Pruitt was probably just as instrumental, but on the execution side of it. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, what the goal you were going for with this show was. You know, it's an NWO show, but you're running it in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Obviously you're going to have a lot of, um, interesting matchup. All the big stars in wrestling are seemingly associated with the NWO one way or another, at least at this point in WCW was the goal to try to make the NWO cool here and have everyone cheering, or was the goal to come in and be heels uh, the, the entire premise of an all heel pay-per-view seems like it would be rather challenging or confusing to book or lay out does anybody sort of raise their hand and suggest that along the way or is it more about hey the cash register is going off they want more nwo let's throw some black and white on it no that, that i mean that's that's silly to to assume that that would have been the the strategy look the 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 idea First of all, it wasn't an all-heel pay-per-view. There were baby faces. Eddie Guerrero was in there. You know, Diamond Dallas Page, he was a huge baby face. Just a week before this this pay-per-view, you know, kind of screwed the NWO when they made an offer to him and got a huge reaction. You know, DDP was a big part of this. Chris Jericho opened up the show as a baby face. So there were plenty of baby faces on the show. It wasn't an all-heel pay-per-view. But you made a good point, you know. As I watch this back, because again, as I <laughs> typically say when we do these things, I had not gone back and watched this pay-per-view since we did it. Right. Um, 
And I made a lot of notes when I was watching it. Some of the notes were specific for this podcast, but some of them were just my own personal notes on how this how this pay-per-view could have been so much better. Because I think the idea, even though you set up the show by saying it's one of the worst pay-per-views in history, I don't think so. I, it, it wasn't to me because I understood, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it from my point of view as a producer, not, not as a fan. And I understand why fans may have felt horrible about this pay-per-view because there were reasons that justified that. But from my point of view as a producer, this pay-per-view was a means to an end. It wasn't an end. It wasn't a blow-off pay-per-view. It wasn't like, oh, my God, all these matches are happening and we're going to blow off all these feuds, which is typically the formula, right? You spend four weeks on television building up to to the payoff, and you make people pay for the payoff, and that's a pay-per-view. This, this pay-per-view wasn't structured that way. This pay-per-view was structured far more as a vehicle and a means to further establish the war, if you will, we were trying to create – artistically between WCW and NWL. That was mission number one. And we checked that box. We didn't check it as well as it could have. And my personal notes on this show, there's a lot of things we can talk about on this podcast, the ways that it could have been much more you know, effective. But we checked that first box. The, the There wasn't a lot of storytelling here. It was really about building the characters, further establishing the distinction uh, between WCW and and NWO, and really, it was an experiment. You know, we did a lot of things on this pay per view that we typically would not have done on a more traditional pay per view. But keep in mind, why did the NWO work? And it's this is hard because we go back and forth in time, and we we kind of skip around during the course of a podcast with regard to the timeline of things. But if you, if you, again, back it all the way up to the very beginning, you know, when I had to launch Nitro in 1995, I don't say I, I mean we, when we had to launch Nitro in 1995 with very little notice, by the way, it's not like we had a year to prepare or even six months. You know, we had a very short window in terms of coming up with a strategy for our brand that would allow it to be at least not embarrassing and and hopefully competitive with WWF in a head-to-head environment. I and I'm not going to go into detail on this anymore, but you know, I went into basically a room by myself with a legal pad and a pen and said, "Okay, I can either be just try to be I could try to out WWF the WWF or I can be completely different than the WWF." And I can't I talk about this a lot. It's a big part of my book. People are probably sick of hearing me see it. They probably even tune it out because they've heard it before. But after watching this pay-per-view, it brought me back. I can't overemphasize the success that Nitro had, that the NWO had, in finding a way to be completely different to the WWF or than the WWF and attracting a new audience as a result of it. Everything that we did that was successful was out of the box. Almost everything that we did that was successful really had never been done before. And this pay-per-view was my way of of taking that to another level and experimenting. And as in any experiment, sometimes, you know, you, you're successful and sometimes you fail. And like I say, looking back at this, I see a lot of things that, wow, I wish I would have had the experience then that I do now. Or, And I don't mean 2020 hindsight. I mean just basic, you know, 
kind of production technique would have made this whole thing a lot better than it was. The, I think the idea of it was a great idea. I still do to this day. Is is much of a bad reputation as this pay-per-view has and as strongly as people feel about it, I still believe that the idea was a great idea. Well, you know, it, it's fun to go back and revisit, you know, these old times. That's what report at the beginning of the January issues that from all accounts, it looks like the deal to bring in Bam Bam Bigelow has fallen through. Apparently Bigelow turned it down and it was written that you guys like the idea of having him be a part of the NWO, but one of the main reasons that he left the WWF in the first place is he was upset about the click. And obviously Kevin Nash seems to be rising in power here. And as a result, he doesn't come in just yet, but eventually Bigelow would come in. What do you remember about Bigelow not coming in or not being interested or the timing wasn't right here in early 97 or late 96? That's like asking me, Conrad, what, what do you remember about it not raining in the summer of 1996? It's like, what the fuck? I, I, you know, I, despite prevailing opinion, you know, that would suggest that, you know, I was instrumental in every acquisition or negotiation or I approved or didn't approve. Even the idea of going out and reaching out to talent isn't true. Keep in mind, we had Kevin Sullivan. We had Terry Taylor. We had Mike Graham. We had Greg Gagne. You know, Hulk certainly had, you know, people coming to him all the time because they looked at Hulk as kind of the gateway into WCW. There were any number of people coming in that I wasn't a part of. So I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm not going to call bullshit on that. It could have very well happened. I will call bullshit on whether or not I was interested in Bam Bam Bigelow in the NWO. That would have been something that I would have been involved in, clearly. And that was never on my radar. Again, I'm not calling bullshit on Dave. He may have been reporting accurately, or he may have been reporting shit that he heard through the grapevine like Mabel was going to be the third man when Sean oh, Waltman was his source while, while Sean Waltman was, was working in the WWF. It may just have been complete, you know, disconnected stuff, but I can tell you, uh, with, with credibility that Bam Bam Bigelow was not on my radar at that point. Let's talk about somebody who was on your radar. Randy Savage Meltzer would report at the beginning of the year that he wasn't signed and most reports he was getting was that you guys weren't even close on money. Of course he does wind up showing up on the January 20th edition of nitro and Meltzer would report afterwards that the new contract is for a limited amount of dates and a $1 million annual fee. Uh, he says, apparently the deal was completed around the same time. Those slim Jim commercials started to appear again. Surprise, uh, chat me up. What do you remember about the back and forth here with Savage? Was there any concern that, that he may wiggle loose? No, no, it, it was just a function of timing. Um, we were negotiating. We were not only negotiating with Randy, we were negotiating with slim Jim. So there were. You know, there were two fronts of negotiation going on there. Um, the issue with Randy, I mean, we never, there was never any threat. You know, we weren't that far apart financially. In fact, I don't think we were far apart at all. Um, the, you know, the, the comment that, you know, Dave made about the limited number of dates, might I remind our listening audience and anybody with a fucking brain that all of our dates were limited dates. Nobody in the company ever had a contract 
that that suggested that there were unlimited dates as a part of their deal. So pointing out the obvious, um, yes, there was a limited number of dates, not much different than everybody else. So I don't, well, I don't know why I, I, I don't know why that was news. I think you're splitting the, hairs there. He's he's clearly implying um, fewer as opposed to. Well, who says that? He didn't say fewer. He said limited. Okay. I mean, maybe I'm splitting hairs, or maybe I'm not, because that was, again, now we're going to narrative. You know, the narrative always suggested that we were overpaying people and not, you know, we didn't have enough d- dates to justify the amount of money that we were paying them. That's been the kind of foundation for many years in, in the narrative about what was wrong with WCW. I'm just pointing out the obvious. There was no difference, difference in, in, in Randy's contract than there was in almost anybody else's contract. So the, the limited number of dates thing doesn't it, – it's worthless information. The, the amount of money, you know, granted, Randy wanted a race. He was not only part of, you know, what I talked about earlier, where the 1,000 percent, you know, uh, growth and in, in, uh, exceeding our projected earnings for 1996, Randy was a part of that. And like anybody, he would want to share in some of that, especially since he was bringing three quarters of a million dollars to the table, you know, that had nothing to do with anything else other than sponsorship. So, yeah, we did. We negotiated for more money. His dates didn't change. He didn't have to perform on less dates. We didn't use Randy a lot to begin with. He wasn't like making every house show. So the dates thing wasn't an issue. The issue was money. He wanted more of it. He felt he deserved it. I agreed that he did, particularly, like I said, with the with the Slim Jim relationship that he brought to the table. <sighs> oh, what so, the fuck? Why is that so hard for you to listen to? No, it's not. I mean, you're arguing for the sake of arguing. Limited just meant exactly what you got to at the end, which you said he's not going to work all the house shows. So he's not going to. Which is just like everybody else. Okay. Well, it's just like everybody else. Oh, I didn't realize that. Nobody was working any of the house shows. You guys just set up a ring and had Charles Robinson. No, what I said was everybody had a limited number of dates in their contract. There was nothing new, nothing newsworthy about the fact that Randy on his second contract had the same number of dates as he did in his first contract. What the fuck is the news there? Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a -a one-of-a-kind, beautiful, hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium. You can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Feel better? Yeah, I do. Uh, you, Sonny Ono, and Kevin Sullivan flew to Honolulu after Nitro for the first of the scheduled quarterly meetings with New Japan. And one of the topics is there was some heat regarding whether or not uh, Sasuke was uh, willing to do the job on nitro for Hugh Morris and new Japan, not wanting him to allegedly WCW wanted him to lose clean to the moonsault and new Japan, not interested in having someone that high up on the new Japan food chain lose to Hugh Morris clean. Any memories of that? It didn't happen. That's bullshit. All right. Let's I don't, I don't know. Well, let's talk. You asked the question. If it was worthy well, of okay. asking, it should be worthy of answering. There was. It's yes, worthy, we of, did, it's worthy we, of asking if there was an actual debate. If there's not an actual debate, we're wasting our fucking time. Would you like to know what we did talk about at the meeting? Sure. Go ahead. Was maybe, was maybe the fact that we had a quarterly meeting was kind of an important thing. It, it lent to the relationship that we had established with, with New Japan. It was a big part of our business. But there was – and this is the point I wanted to make. There, not to argue, just to argue because I don't like to argue to, despite your suggestion that I do. What I want to make clear – is that we had a great working relationship. There was never an issue. And this is another thing that has, you know, it floats around out there. And I, again, I don't know how this story ended up being printed. Unless Kevin Sullivan suggested to Dave Meltzer, and it's a possibility, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. Unless Kevin Sullivan somehow came out of that meeting in Hawaii and called Dave Meltzer and said, oh, my God, we had this big issue, you know, with Sasaki doing the job, you know, for Hugh Morris. Now, maybe Kevin said that for some reason. I can't imagine why. But it didn't happen. We never had those kinds of issues. The Japanese weren't as concerned about their talent doing jobs for American talent as the narrative would suggest. Just like I wasn't as concerned about our guys doing finishes over in Japan. This is before streaming. It was before the, well, not before the internet, but certainly before the evolution of the internet, which made, you know, sharing these, these kinds of things, you know, very easy as it is today. So if it happened to Japan, it stayed in Japan. And the Japanese kind of felt the same way. If it happened in the U.S., for the most part, it stayed in the U.S. and didn't really affect the Japanese. It's not like Japanese, you know, the people in Tokyo and, you know, Okada, or, you know, Hokkaido and all these other places around Japan um, were watching Nitro or watching our pay-per-views. It didn't happen. So that issue about New Japan, you know, not wanting their guys to do jobs for our guys is, is I think, for the most part, about 95% fiction. Some of it, when it did, when there were issues, it was sometimes timing. Um that we had to take in consideration as WCW did as well, but there were never, it was never that, you know, resistance, if you will, that people tend to think there was the January 13th nitro went down at the Superdome in new Orleans and it drew a nitro record. 10,034 fans paid 
a gain of $104,785. Of course, they're going to smash that many times over on Nitro in the future. But this was the first ever time that you guys had more than 10,000 in attendance. And really the first time more than 10,000 fans and a six-figure gate had happened in New Orleans for like 10 years, going back to Bill Watts and the UWF. This is the fa- this is the match where famously Diamond Dallas Page beat Mark Starr with a diamond cutter. Where at the last minute he had a bunch of time cut off the show uh, or off of the match, and then they did the whole presentation of the NWO T-shirt from Kevin Nash and Scott Hall to Diamond Dallas Page, who then delivers a diamond cutter to Scott Hall and uh, powders out in time for Kevin Nash to take a tumble. He leaves through the crowd. Big moment for DDP. Um, if you listen to page long enough, he'll tell you that this spot had been planned for a long time and got booked or bumped many, many times. And then eventually it finally happens here. Uh, what do you remember about this big moment for your friend DDP? It was a big moment. And I, I honestly had forgotten about it till I watched it back again, um, in review for this show. It, it was, you know, my notes on that really was this is really beginning to um, we're seeing the evolution of Paige's character really begin to mature. You know, he still came out with the cigar. He still had that cocky, goofy entrance that he, you know, like to walk out with his arms, you know, cocked back and his chin up in the air, smoking a cigar. We would eventually see see him lose even that element of his gimmick. But he was really coming into his own here. And, I, you know, th- this match, it's not the best match on the pay-per-view, in my opinion. Um, but it's probably the second best match on the pay-per-view. Um, and, and primarily because of the finish, because of the way it was executed. Again, Paige going down into – we're talk, I'm talking about Uncensored now. You're talking about January, I'm guessing. Um, the, the the angle that – where he was presented with a T-shirt, is that – yeah, I'm that's a little January, confused. But yeah, that's January 13th, uh, a couple of weeks before the show. I don't know when we're covering Uncensored, but if you have a story about Uncensored, we'd love to hear it. Well, there's not much of a story. You you asked me, you know, what do I remember? It. I just remember it being such a big moment. And it, again, one of the one of the flaws in sold, and there's many flaws, by the way, in sold out. But one of the flaws is that we didn't give the WCW portion of that audience, even though there was a lot of NWO fans there. If you go back and watch it, you look at the crowd reaction and you look at the first few rows of ringside, which are your most passionate fans who spend the most amount of money to go to that event. They were clearly NWO fans, but there was a big WCW contingent in there as well. And other than Paige and, um, God, you know, Eddie Guerrero, got a great reaction at the finish of his, but we didn't really give the, that audience enough WCW and what page did when he did it, the way he did it going up into the crowd, got a massive reaction. And I really think that this pay-per-view probably set him on his trajectory, um, probably more than anything else. But that moment on nitro at the Superdome, that's the, that's the, uh, the lip match for his 1997. Is it not? I believe so. Yep. And he only got better. That's a cool thing about Paige. And if you go back and watch his career and how he just, again, I'll use the word trajectory. I mean, he went straight up. You know, a lot of times a, a career path looks more like an arc than it, than it does a, a rocket. Um, Paige really was a lot more of a rocket than he was an arc. And that moment in St. Louis was, you know, that was a launching pad for him for sure. 
I don't even know what you're talking about right now. You're saying uncensored in St. Louis. We're talking about new Orleans, Superdome on nitro. Well, we should go back and fix that then. Cause I'm confused. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why I threw St. Louis in there. I, I meant to talk about new Orleans. What didn't make any sense is this Superdome main event. Hulk Hogan and the giant is the advertised main event. It's going to work. You guys get a 3.4 rating or only gets a 2.3. But the match starts about a minute before the show goes off the air. And then immediately the new TNT television movie, Robin hood starts and they go off the air acting as if instead of airing commercials, they're going to air the match during the commercials of Robin hood, pretty creative, which you guys were trying here, but the first break of Robin hood, it's commercials. It's not actually wrestling, but you do get there on the second commercial, but they only go back for 30 seconds or so. And we're pretending that it's live. Of course, by that point, the match had been over for 20 minutes. Thank God. Uh, about 40 minutes into the show, they go back and show another 30 seconds. Once again, pretending as if they've been out there for 45 minutes and allegedly there is some backlash about this. And a lot of people are crying foul. I think it's pretty innovative, but there probably should have been more frequent breaks. And that first one definitely should have had wrestling. Tell me whose idea this was at TNT and how this came to be. It came to us through Brad Siegel. Uh, Brad was obviously it's TNT. Brad was the, uh, the president of the TNT network. And we, you and I have touched on this a little bit in the past. One of the challenging things about wrestling, and it's been that way forever, is that it's hard to it's hard to program it, meaning you, your, your lead in ideally should be a, a, a program that wrestling fans you would at least hope or think would find attractive because you want to build up as much of an audience leading into a show like Monday Night Raw or or Nitro as you possibly can. It's better to start out with a with a three rating and try to build on that than it is to start out with a one point nothing and and build from there. So the idea for Robin Hood as the outro, not the intro or the lead in, but the lead out um, was to leverage the massive audience that we had because we did. We were at this point, we were hugely successful for TNT. I don't think they had anything with as much of an audience as we did. And the fact that we had it late at night the way we did uh, made it a perfect lead in for Robin Hood. And TNT invested a lot of money into Robin Hood. And they wanted to give it every opportunity they could to to succeed. So Brad came to us and said, look, what can you guys come up with? How can we tie your show into our show? What kind of a stunt? And it really was a stunt. We, we referred it to that. What kind of stunt can you guys come up with that will drag some of your audience over to ours for this premiere? So we just got our heads together and we came up with this idea. And in terms of your point about there should have been more commercial breaks, you, you can't just like – you know, arbitrarily decide some show is going to have nine paper, nine breaks, and and some show is going to have only four. You know, it it doesn't work quite that way. There's a finite number of commercial breaks built into the format. There's a finite number of minutes of actual content and programming that fits into that format. And once that's formulated, you pretty much have to stick to it. We couldn't have gone back to the writers of Robin Hood and said, "Hey, we don't want to do as many commercial breaks, so could you possibly just, you know, create more scenes?" It, it doesn't work that way. We sat down with Brad, we figured out the number of commercial breaks that we did have to work with when they were and what guidelines we needed to follow from 
from TNT because they had pre-sold some of those advertisements and some of them were committed to the upfront part of that show, just like they are in this podcast. You know, the, the first position, second position, third positions are they're not the same price because everybody knows that you lose audience over the course of an hour or two hours. So we took what we had to work with and we tried to make it work as best we could as good corporate citizens. What, what am I going to do? Tell Brad Siegel, no, we're not going to play nice. We're not going to try, try to help you overcome what has been an historical problem is programming around wrestling. The wrestling audience is very unique. The, the good thing is they will find you eventually. The bad thing is once they're done, once the show's over, they leave in droves. And we were trying to solve that. So what did you say about there should be wrestling in the first commercial? There should have been. Okay. But that wasn't our that wasn't our call. Okay. What well, was your call to say there would be, but it wasn't your call whether or not there was? It wasn't my call. That was Brad Siegel's call. I didn't program TNT. That was Brad Siegel's charge. What Brad says is here's here here's where we can here's where we can use a commercial break as a stunt opportunity. Okay? We'll take that. We'll try to make that work. Am I giving you too much information? Am I talking too fast nah, or what? I'm just being an arrogant motherfucker, talking down to people. That's all. No, 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 no. I, I want to know if I can do a better job for you and, and make you feel better and make you enjoy this process more. I want to, I want to accommodate you, Conrad. I mean, I love you. I no, love no, doing but this you're, podcast. You're being a real smug asshole saying, oh, you can only take so many breaks. I know that, but you can front load them. And I also know that when you're telling people, hey, we're going to show the wrestling during the commercials, you know, you ought to show fucking wrestling during the commercial. That's just me though. Okay. I could have, we might have been a little misleading. Thank you. See, was that hard? I don't no. think, I don't think either way. How about this? It worked. Even though you were a shithead and uh, everyone was <laughs> mad about it. It worked. You got a 3.4 rating raw got a 2.3 and you did apologize in an interview you did with prodigy. You said under the circumstances, we felt like it was in our best interest to help with the network efforts. Uh, you also addressed shotgun Saturday night, which had just launched for the competition and you were not happy about it. It amazes me that Vince McMahon continues to use blasphemy and sex to try to cram his product down the throats of the viewing public in the name of family entertainment. It's the depths of bad taste, particularly when a Mattel commercial follows a skit like fondle me Elmo. It's the typical Vince McMahon genius. From what I've seen, it's probably been the worst thing that has been produced in our genre in the last 10 years. I wouldn't be surprised if Jim Ross, Vince McMahon, and Bruce Prichard aren't all standing in the ring, biting off heads of chickens to try to get a rating. <laughs> I remember saying that. That was awesome. <laughs> so so what do you think? I mean, the shotgun Saturday night concept seems like something you would be into. Was it the execution you missed? Or are you just trying to throw shade on the competition? Primarily showing, throwing shade on the competition, but it was look, and I I'm, clearly Vince McMahon was the better producer and the better man had a better vision, whatever he won. I lost, but the tacky shit that he did in the name of entertainment, which was really interesting to me is even working in WWE. Uh, and you know, I didn't interface that much with Vince truth be told, but when I did, there was on more than one occasion, I would hear his reaction to something and even things that I wasn't involved with, but hearing him lay something out or discuss something that was going to be going on on raw when I was there, 
Oh my God, that's crass. That was his favorite word. If he didn't like something and it was a little tacky, oh my God, that's so crass. We're never going to do anything like that. And then you go back and look at some of the shit that he thought was great TV and, you know, Google crass. <laughs> so I think crass is in the eye of the beholder when it comes to Vince McMahon. And some of the stuff that they did uh, on that show was just, the show was tacky. That was my overall impression. It was just tacky. It wasn't creative. It wasn't really that entertaining. It was like frat house, you know, smoke a bunch of weed, crack a couple beers and do crass shit in front of your frat friends. That's what that show reminded me of. Um, do you know what you're going to do with the pageant winner on this show? Did I know in no, advance? I'm just saying you're talking about crass and you're going to have big girls out here and you're going to shit talk them and then you're going to make out with one. I did make out with the pageant winner and I was proud to do so. It was, I, I, I thought, wow, what, what an opportunity to take an average woman, not some fake silicone infested fucking strip club audition, you know, hot chick. What, why not celebrate the middle of America, the, 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 the women, the mothers, the sisters, the daughters of middle America and give them an opportunity to, to shine and be on television. It doesn't always have to be big breasted, beautiful women. Sometimes it's just the average American that, that needs some recognition. And that's what I did because I had vision. I was ahead of my time. Okay. Let's get back to this prodigy interview. You, you also, she was a hot kisser too, by the way, just so you know, I'm going to take your word for it. She wasn't bad. Uh, you described the chance of the ultimate warrior joining WCW as quote, an ice cubes chance in hell. Yeah. So the next year ice cubes were all over hell. Um, it changes <laughs> brother. Never say never. Right. It's the you, wrestling business. You also acknowledge that you had had conversations with Tatanka, but nothing lately. Uh, so maybe Meltzer was right. Maybe you are going to put him in the NWO. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you, you also reference, um, Mark Merrow because he says in the, in a more recent WWF magazine at the time that in his three years in WCW, he was never tested for drugs and acknowledged that during that time he was taking steroids and you counter, I'll be anxious to check my records when I get back into my office tomorrow morning just to see if it's another one of the inconsistencies of Mark Merrow's world. Were you cross with Mark Merrow or just trying to defend yourself there? I wasn't really angry with Mark. I liked Mark. Um, you know, I, I, I socialized with Mark a little bit. You know, I remember going to Mark and, and Rena's house, um, and watching boxing, a couple boxing pay-per-views. So, I mean, I, I had a, a pretty good relationship with Mark. I was disappointed in him that he felt the need to, to lash out the way he did. Um, I was disappointed that we, that, that Mark left. I, I really didn't want Mark to leave, to go to WWF. You know, I envisioned him being a part of WCW. I, I clearly recognized the need to change his Johnny B. Bad character. It was too, too early nineties ish for this period of time. But I remember having a conversation with Mark. We were in an airport, uh, in Atlanta, and we, you know, we crossed paths. We weren't going to the same location. And, and when Mark told me he was, you know, going to WWF, I thought, well, you know, I don't know why timing isn't necessarily great. And Mark looked at me and, and he said, because I know Vince McMahon can make me a star. 
and and he and Vince had evidently had a long conversation about how Vince McMahon and the WWF were going to put him on a rocket ship and make him a star. And I, not that I didn't see it, or certainly not that I didn't believe that Vince said that to him, but I thought, wow, if you just take a look at what's going on right now, why would you think you have a better opportunity there than here? And it's, and again, because he was a friend, you know, and, and I wanted him to stay, but he, not only did he leave, which is fine. I didn't hold that against him, but the fact he did to lash out did put me on the defensive. Let's talk about, um, the Sean Michaels question. You got it a lot during every chat and you got it here too, about whether or not Sean Michaels would be coming in and you answer, I'm not sure Michaels would ever fit on our roster, but you're very complimentary of Bret Hart at the same time, which is no surprise, but I saw a rumor, uh, and obviously you know how these rumors are, but someone alleged online the other day that you had heat with Sean going back to the AWA days that maybe there was some sort of scuttlebutt. There was something in a bar or some sort of uh, interaction that was less than pleasant with you and your wife and Sean Michaels, and maybe even Marty Jannetty at the time. True. Not true. So ridiculously untrue. It's hard to comment on, you know, Sean, Sean was an AWA. He was literally on his way out the door. Um, by the time I got there, I think our paths technically in terms of working for the same person crossed for a period of about three months. And at no time during that 90-day period did I ever have any interaction with Sean other than the one event, the very first event that I promoted in Mason City, Iowa, when Sean and Marty were booked on the card. And even then I had very, cause I, you know, I wasn't involved on the wrestling side of things. I, you know, Vern and Greg let me promote that particular town because I had some connections in that town because the, the local television station was really excited about supporting it. Um, so I was quote unquote, the promoter of that event. But as a promoter, you know, Wahoo McDaniel and Ray Stevens were the bookers and the agents and Greg Grani was, was very directly involved in it. I had never had, I don't think I had a syllable of conversation with Shawn Michaels during the whole time that, well, during the whole time, during the brief period of time that he was in the AWA while I was. So whoever felt the need, you know, to, to come up with that story and, and whatever, I, I don't know why anybody would do that, but it's nothing is further from the truth. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Melissa would report that Sullivan and Benoit are taking their angle to the extreme, so to speak. Quote, after Nitro on January 13th, there was a brawl where Sullivan punched Benoit twice at about 1230 AM at high toppers, a bar near Superdome. And they had a major pull apart after Benoit was making out with Nancy. This is similar to the Pillman deal and that only the ones in on it are probably Kevin, Nancy, Chris Bischoff, and a few others. And they're trying to pass it off to the boys as legit since most of the wrestlers were there because of the Pillman deal. Almost none of the wrestlers buy it, but there are a few who thought it was legit. 
there were only a few people at the bar that weren't WCW personnel. Wasn't mentioned on TV. Hasn't been talked about a lot. Was this a worked shoot thing or is this just uh reality coming to the surface? I don't know. You know, only Kevin Sullivan now, unfortunately would know the answer to that. Let me try to put my involvement in that angle in context. I was aware of what Kevin was doing. I knew what the goal was and I knew what the overall, you know, from 33,000 feet looking down, I knew what the angle and the story was, how it was executed, particularly because of the nature of it. That was up to Kevin and Nancy and Chris. They had to be comfortable with what they were going to do. I wasn't going to get involved and suggest that, you know, Chris and Nancy, you know, swap spit inside of a club full of people that worked for WCW and have a big pull apart to try to advance the story. I I was not part of that. If that was Kevin's strategy, you know, one of these days we'll get Kevin on the show and we'll talk about that. I'd love to do that with Kevin, by the way, to really dig into how much of that was real and how much of it was Memorax and what started out as real and how it evolved and all that. But to answer your question, I, I was not aware of that. I was, I was not a part of planning it or approving it or certainly not in executing it. And by the way, I wasn't there when it happened. So that's really just a, that's a Kevin Sullivan question. I don't mean to avoid it. I just don't want to make up bullshit answers. I know you weren't at the house show in Shreveport, but there was an incident with Scott Hall and Jerry Sags. Scott Hall has a tooth knocked out. Two teeth are knocked loose, uh, a black eye. And there's even a report a preliminary report of a broken eardrum. He's going to have oral surgery, not expected to return to nitro this week, but is actually there. And depending on who you believe with the company politics, uh, this is a pretty hairy situation. The nasty boys are on the Hogan camp. Hall and Nash, of course, have their own. What did you hear happened? What was the fallout? Well, I heard about it right away. Um, I got a call that night after it happened and <laughs> I just ran into Jerry Sags about two weeks ago. Um, I can't remember which town we were in now, but, uh, we, we did an event together and I still got an earful of it. Jerry Sags will tell you that story every time he sees you, whether you want to hear it or not. And what happened is according to Jerry, now there's two sides to every story. But according to Jerry, uh, there was a chair involved in a match, and he felt that Scott took liberties. Uh, he felt that Scott was uh, under the influence and just wasn't as careful as he should have been. And it started out, you know, Jerry Sags is not somebody that's going to take any shit from anybody, especially back then and probably even now. He's he's a very easy guy to get along with, by the way. Jerry Sags always was. But there was always a line, you know, with Jerry that if you crossed it, he became – irrational. You couldn't talk to him for quite a while. And again, according to, to Jerry, Scott crossed that line. He took liberties with a chair. Sags took exception to it. You know, Scott was really good at taunting people. He liked to stir shit. And he, in particularly with the nasty boys, he loved to, in a, not just with them, but particularly with them. He loved to stir people up. He loved to make people, you know, angry about the fact that Scott was getting something that they weren't getting or that he was special or some kind of, you know, exclusive citizen within WCW. And a lot of guys took exception to that. He was working them. He was fucking with them. But a lot of guys took the bait. Jerry wasn't one of them. 
and they got into it. Jerry was a tough son of a bitch. You know, people always talk about the Mings and, you know, some of the tougher guys in, in WCW or WWF. Jerry Sags was no slouch. I mean, he, he was he was a real legit deal, and he wasn't afraid to, to go at it. And he did. And Scott Hall was on the receiving end of it. Allegedly, um, Hall threw a chair and uh, into the ring, and Sags was not paying attention he was not expecting it. This was not planned and it nails him. And that's what causes the problem. And, and afterwards, uh, supposedly Nash gets a baseball bat, tries to confront the guys and there's back and forth to the point where some believe that Sags was going to be fired. Hall has said that you even basically said you were going to fire Sags, but Scott says he talked you out of it saying that sags had kids and not to fire him do you remember that no what i remember is hearing the other side of the story what i remember was talking to some of the people who were there and saw what actually happened and that's why he didn't get fired okay um allegedly public enemy and harlem heat are working in this era without contracts which i found interesting in my research and of course that leads to, especially in this era, Hey, what if these guys jump specifically Harlem heat? Now, of course we know that's not going to happen. They, they didn't wind up jumping, but was there a concern, at least in your mind that Harlem heat may be looking to make a move? Zero. Okay. Absolutely zero. And not for any other reason, certainly not because I didn't think highly of them. I did, but because you know, step back, forget about all the narrative that you read or hear or think, you know, people were WWF was not a place anybody wanted to be. It, it wasn't other than Johnny B. Bad. There was not a lot of people thinking, wow, I want to this thing called WCW, which has been a distant number two since the very beginning, uh, is now all of a sudden rocking and rolling and turning things around and outperforming the WWF. Now, maybe there were some people who may have thought, Wow, maybe they're desperate or they're more needy now than they have been previously. But it's not like a lot of talent was looking forward to jumping to WWF or even suggested that they might uh, in negotiations. That that wasn't the time that I was going to be concerned about talent leaving WCW to go to WWF. Let's go to the uh, Nitro on the 20th, uh, which would be in Chicago. Around that same time, we would see Ric Flair drop a hockey puck for the Blackhawks and Ted Turner spoke at a cable convention of some kind, and the speech actually aired on C-SPAN. And when he opens it up for questions, somebody from the audience asked, why did Hulk Hogan turn bad? And Ted replied, why not? Change is good. He bragged about the success of WCW for a couple of minutes, including its high ratings and even plugged the hotline, which I think is hilarious. Uh, but this show on the 20th opens with Randy Savage sitting down in the ring and refusing to move saying he's been blacklisted out of WCW by you. And, uh, he eventually winds up cleaning house. Sting comes down from the ceiling, confronts Savage, and then gives Savage the bat, turning his back to allow Savage to hit him. But Savage doesn't. And then they leave through the crowd. What's the thinking in that creative guy? I love that. Just the way you laid it out. That's good television. You know, the thinking behind it was, you know, at this point, Sting is watching, his friends, people that were, you know, creatively speaking now, people that were his his friends, his his tag team partners, his, you know, 
previous baby faces for WCW all jumping ship and joining NWO. The idea there, the very, the basic premise was Sting had to know who he could trust. And by coming down, you know, clearly Randy was pissed off, you know, story in, in this storyline and was anti, you know, Eric Bischoff and anti NWO, but Sting needed to know. He needed to know who he could trust. And what better way than, you know, come down out of the ceiling and give give the man you're deciding whether or not you could trust a weapon, turn your back and give him a shot. And in in that way, Sting knew, at least at that point in the storyline, that he could absolutely trust Randy because he gave him every opportunity to to go the other way. That same episode, we would see Sullivan and Benoit brawl to the bathroom and back. And that sets up clash of the champions, which happens the very next day from Milwaukee. Uh, and the opening match there is Dean Malenko winning the cruiserweight title from Ultimo dragon in a tremendous match. Uh, Liger was supposed to be in the match, but couldn't make it because of visa problems. So Malenko winds up taking the spot. Uh, lots of other matches on here. I'm going to skip around though, because I want to talk about Chris Benoit and Kevin Sullivan having a false count anywhere match. Uh, it got three stars. Obviously that's going to be something that we're going to talk about for a long, long time. Uh, Luger beat Scott Hall by DQ when Kevin Nash and six interfered in the main event of this class of the champions, but it wasn't a great match. Only a star and a quarter. Um, it's a class of the champions just four days before sold out. It does a 3.5 rating. So roughly 2.4 million homes. But that seems like a lot, doesn't it? To have a, a, a nitro on Monday, a clash on Tuesday and a pay-per-view on Saturday. Talk about overexposure and oversaturation. You know, that was, you know, after I, I watched uncensored to prepare for the show and I took my dog out for a hike for about an hour, I was thinking about all of this, you know, and, and knowing what I know now and wishing I would have known it then, but this was the beginning of some pretty serious mistakes that were being made and they weren't visible to the audience necessarily. They weren't visible to me at the time because of my lack of, I guess, experience. But at this point, you know, if I had to do it all over again, knowing what I know now, I would, I would have fought that clash. You know, my mistake was wanting to please everybody and over deliver for everybody. Keep in mind, and again, there was politics between TNT and TBS. You know, they were competitive. They were under the same umbrella, but believe me, they were competitive. And the people at TBS kind of had a bad taste in their mouth because that was the home of WCW. They gave birth to WCW on the Turner Network. And then all of a sudden, all of the headlines, all of the the accolades are going to TNT, who was who new to the Turner game and with regard to WCW. So there was, there was politics there and I did, I didn't do as good a job as I should have anticipating what happens when you overexpose your product. And we were clearly overexposed at that point. Let's talk a little bit about Don Fry. Uh, he does a radio interview around this time and they bring up the rumor that he's going to replace Steve McMichael and the four horsemen. And Fry even says he's been talking to Ric Flair regularly and he hopes it happens. Did you ever have a serious conversation or do you remember anybody in the company having a conversation about Don Fry maybe coming in? I did. I, I, I met with Don and we went out to lunch. Super nice guy. Uh, I thought he had a great look. Clearly he had a lot of great credibility, but he wasn't, 
you know, he had a, a lot of great credibility in MMA. It's not the same thing as what we were doing at that time. And keep in mind, in 97, you know, MMA UFC was not the phenomenon that we know of today, right? It was still struggling. They were still losing money hand over fist. They had a very bad re- – UFC, I'm talking about, had a very bad relationship with pay-per-view providers. And there was there was a distaste in a lot of people's mouths on the business side of the equation about the UFC. So th- there was no real, oh, my God, we got this huge UFC star. We got to get him into WCW. That was not a factor. But Don Don had a great look, you know, and I, I always believed that an amateur wrestler could probably adapt to professional wrestling and sports entertainment quicker than, you know, any other type other than maybe a gymnast than any other type of athlete. Um, so I was interested in Don, but um, in as much respect as I still have for Don Fry, I, I will tell you the reason I didn't hire him is, number one, he had a pretty high opinion of himself from a financial perspective, and number two – he didn't have a lot of charisma. There was nothing there as I sat across and had lunch with him. Nice guy, believe me, super nice guy. He's a guy, kind of guy I like to you know, go hunting with and things like that. But in terms of having that type of personality and that character that would stand out and potentially become a star, I didn't see it in him. Let's talk about uh, the actual show. Let's get there. Uh, sold out. And Meltzer says, you may call it the night the NWO gimmick was fully exposed. Maybe it'll even go down as a turning point in an ever-changing wrestling war at the very worst. At best, it was one real bad night. Lucky, if only for the fact that one bad show doesn't change the face of wrestling and that the majority of the television viewing wrestling fans don't order pay-per-view and thus didn't see this. Problem is, most of the television viewing wrestling fans who actually spend money on pro wrestling thus basically keep the wrestling economy going do order pay-per-view events. NWO sold out what came off to outsiders as the brainchild of someone intoxicated by his own success to the point of all perspective being lost was the single worst pay-per-view show in the history of professional wrestling. There have been shows where the quality of the matches were worse, although this would be a bad show by that criteria. There have been shows with less heat and worse atmosphere, although this would be a bad show by that criteria as well. But there has never been a show with such poor announcing and outside wrestling skits combined with bad wrestling, lack of heat and bad atmosphere and made it in the night of the Baltimore bash and the Philadelphia Halloween havoc were no longer thought of as the bottom of the pay-per-view barrel. It was like WCW copied the worst aspects of the first two weeks of shotgun Saturday night, and then tried to go even farther to the point. It looked like a bar show put on by a person whose brain was so fried by acid that they only knew what world they were in. And it only had a semblance of a resemblance of the pro wrestling show. They were attempting to put together. It was even more amazing coming from a company that was on its biggest role in its history and is loaded when it comes to talent depth, neither of which were apparent here. Your rebuttal. Fuck him. <laughs> I was particularly fond of the whole fraud by acid line. You know, and he, here's, here's the part that's unfortunate. You know, I don't disagree with some of the specific points that they've made. I don't. The, the, the atmosphere did suck. And, and that's in my, the notes I made to myself to, to keep in my file. It did suck. 
it was sold out, by the way, or pretty close to it, no pun intended. Yeah. Um, the the look of the show, look, it, it wasn't created or designed. There was no intention to make it look glitzy. The idea was it was the NWO. They were counterculture. They 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 were anarchists. That's why we drove to the fucking building in garbage trucks, for Christ's sake. It doesn't take a fucking genius or someone with with a creative mindset to recognize that this pay-per-view was intentionally designed to do everything different than we had previously done. That was the earmark. That was the template. That was the success, by the way, of the NWO. And we did try some things that I would never try again. You know, there was a lot of flaws in this. I hated my announcing. Going back and listening to this again, I fucking hated it. You know, it was it was a poor decision on my part, not because I was infatuated with my own power and success or putting myself over, you know, dropping acid and had a fried brain. You know, the idea of putting me, what was I going to do? Put Tony Schiavone in play-by-play and then a WCW announcer in the play-by-play position. We needed to make it look and feel different. It had to be its own entity, not a, a kind of a different version of WCW. That was the, that was the goal, and we fell short of that goal in, in, in many of the respects that, that Dave kind of suggested or pointed out in that, that commentary. But to wrap all of that around such a, a negative, bitter, uninformed perspective, it, it, it reads well. I mean, great job writing, Dave. But if you don't – if you really want to know what was going on, if you really want to try to understand the intention – behind that pay-per-view. Why was it that everything looked different? Why the fuck would we come in in 20 degree below zero weather, by the way, through downtown Cedar Rapids on garbage trucks because we were because we were trying to do what everybody else was doing? Why did we have the Miss NWO contest when we could have easily, you know, probably found 15 of the hottest women in the Midwest who would have been just as happy to do it? Why did we do that? You know, there's a lot of things that we tried that just didn't work. But anybody that's ever been in the creative business that tells you they've never tried things that didn't work is full of shit. They're lying to you. Yeah, we tried some things. We wanted to make it look a different. And there were some things I really liked, by the way. You know, there was just a number of examples of really poor execution. The ideas were right. Honestly, take a little thing like those shadow boxes that were up behind the, the stage where the trons normally would have been. That was cool. It, it was cool, but it was poorly executed, you know, and that's my responsibility, by the way. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody else. That's that's all me. But the idea for that came from, um, I believe it was the MGM Grant had a bar called Shadow Box. And you would go in there and there'd be these beautiful dancers naked, you know, but you couldn't see anything because it was a shadow. But you could tell they were, you know, they didn't have any clothes on. But it was sexy as hell without being sexual, if you will. And I thought, wow, what a cool thing to do. Well, coming up with a cool idea and executing a cool idea are sometimes two different things. Yeah, we came up with it. That's 50%, but we didn't execute. And as a result, that fell completely flat. You know, the the fact that we didn't, you know, looking back at it now, I cringed when I saw Jeff Katz's interviews with some of the, you know, the, the women, the, the women, because we didn't prep him at all. You know, m- my belief of no, let's not rehearse it. Let's, you know, let's, 
let, let's let it live live. Let it be real. That worked in many, many cases and in many, many respects. It worked. You know, Hulk Hogan turning without prepping Mean Gene and Mean Gene covering it the way he covered it or reacting the way he reacted. That was magic. But that same thing, you can't apply that same technique to people who have never been in front of a camera before. That was my mistake. Mine, mine alone. Um, had that concept with the, with, with the girls and Miss NWO been executed properly and we would have prepped that talent and made them feel more comfortable because those poor women, you know, Jeff Katz turned, you know, he set them up and he turned the microphone to him and it was like, Oh fuck. Now what? You know, they just weren't ready and it could have been so much better. It could have been so much more fun and people would probably be looking back at it now and laughing about it as opposed to, you know, throwing up in their mouth. I mean, I get it. I felt the same way watching it today. But you, again, you just have to, if you really want to understand why and how, you know, look at it from the point of view as we're trying something different. As I said at the beginning of the show, it was a means to an end. It wasn't an end. It was a work in progress. We knew that going in. We knew we were going to try some things with the camera angles to try to present the product differently. And and by the way, looking at it again in review for the show or this podcast, um, some of that stuff was really innovative. It wasn't executed as well as I wished it would have been, but it was some great shit. I want to mention, uh, what I thought you were describing is the actual set with all the lights, like on the stairs. I thought that was the cool. I, if I'm honest with you, I didn't even recognize that you had shadow dancers. Yeah, we did. And well, good <laughs> because it would just be one more thing you could bust my balls about. Well, let's talk about, uh, the opening. You guys are coming into the arena on big rigs and all black and white. It's garbage trucks in the snow accompanied by police and cars and motorcycles. Meltzer would say that you guys shot that the night before chat me up. Why the fuck did you guys ride garbage trucks to the arena? Because it was 180 degrees from everything else that you would expect to see. We've, we, you know, even back then we'd all become too accustomed to the limo arrival. Fuck if I never see one more limo arrival in the history of professional wrestling or sports entertainment, it'll be five minutes too soon. We wanted, we, I, again, my book, every interview I've ever done, the success of Nitro was don't try to be better than the competition. Try to be different than the competition. And by being different, hopefully you'll attract an audience of your own. And that, that was the premise for Nitro. It was the formula for Nitro. It was the formula for everything that we did. Not everything. Most of the things that we did um, without alienate, completely alienating the audience, the, the established WCW audience. So this was just another, in the, you know, what would Vince McMahon do? Oh, he'd come to, the, come to the fucking building in a limo. You know, what would Hulk Hogan have done normally when he was the red and yellow Hulk Hogan at WCW? Oh, we'd have come to the, the building in a limo with a couple of celebrities. You know, it would have been a red carpet. I wanted to go completely the other way and kind of celebrate and embrace the fact that we were counterculture. When I say we, I mean NWO as a brand. Let's talk about, uh, you and Ted DiBiase doing commentary. Uh, how do you think you told me you weren't happy with yours? Uh, how do you think, uh, Ted did? And what about a very reluctant Elizabeth putting the leather jacket on you? Um, well, I'll tell you why I hated my stuff. Uh, in listening to it, to review this podcast, I, I was trying to be in character. 
you know, I had two jobs, you know, I had to cover the action and tell a story. And in my attempt, and it was a piss poor attempt to do that in character, it lost any credibility. It just, it'd be it'd, a little bit of it would have been fine. Like if I would have played, if I had to do it all over again, I would have played it really straight down the middle and let slip my allegiance occasionally throughout the broadcast because I was a pretty decent play-by-play. I wasn't as good as Tony Schiavone uh, or certainly not as good as Jim Ross, but I was I was pretty decent as a play-by-play guy if I played it down the middle. Once I tried to do that as a character, it sucked horribly. And I, and as I'm listening, because I'm really sensitive to play-by-play and color, I'm, I'm, it's one of the things I pick apart first when I watch – you know, a wrestling show. Um, and it just was so not believable and not interesting because there was no storytelling. It was all shitting on WCW. And that was a huge mistake on my part, you know, listening back to it. I didn't feel it as I was doing it, but certainly looking back at it, it was just horrible. As far as Ted, Ted wasn't much better than me, but Ted, and I've, you know, I've said this before to you, I take 100% responsibility of bad casting. You know, I put I put Ted in a spot that was just not – A number one, it wasn't believable because I was still playing and leveraging off of the million-dollar man persona and character that he had. You know, I guess hoping that some people still believed that somehow he really was a millionaire and, and was able to – help NWO as a result. That is such a a fictional, childish, leftover storyline for the WWF. I would have been far better off to reestablish Ted's character and make it more believable. Him coming in as the trillion-dollar man, fucking horrible idea. That's all on me. That has nothing to do with Ted. Ted has had, and still has, great ability, great credibility, great experience. He knows the business, knows how to tell a story. He's got a great voice, you know, for, for the type of work that we wanted to bring him in for, but to cast him in the NWO, particularly with a goofy gimmick, like the trillion dollar man, it was bad right off the bat. The only thing that made it worse was the fact that I really didn't spend the time to prep with Ted, particularly, you know, coming out of the shoot on his first real show. Um, we didn't sync up, you know, creatively, we didn't sync up in terms of, you know, the ultimate goal of what we wanted to achieve for this particular show. There was no real pre-production, um, between he and I, it was, you know, I, I just, I overdid the, you know, let's, let's let it live live and let's let, let's take advantage of improv. Let's capture the magic of reality and spontaneity and let's let it be real. And in this case, it didn't work. In some cases, it did. In this case, it didn't. And that's all on me. That's not on Ted. Ted was just put in a terrible position. And and by the way, a terrible position without any pre-production on a pay-per-view that was particularly difficult. And and Ted Ted came off the same way I did. Is bad, but not because of his abilities or lack thereof. Let's get to the matches. Masahiro Chono pins Chris Jericho in 11 minutes and eight seconds after a Yakuza kick. And throughout the match, you're taking shots at WWE saying you didn't have to give away tickets at a seven 11 to get people to come to this, which is obviously a clear shot at the different campaigns that the WWF is trying to do to fill their dome for the Royal rumble in San Antonio. 
Uh, the fans are chanting USA here, which is pretty fucking hilarious. You got a Canadian and a Japanese fellow, but whatever. Two stars. Uh, what do you think of the match? Not really impressed with it, uh, particularly for an opener. Um, slow paced uh, throughout the match to me. And again, this is because I know what Chris Jericho was and is capable of. Uh, I thought he looked awkward and just a little bit off pace, I guess, maybe the right way to say it. He just, he, he wasn't as crisp as you would normally expect Chris Jericho to be. I thought the finish was flat. Now I'm going to give a little, you know, respect to the people involved in this match, Chono and Jericho. The reason that the crowd really wasn't into this match and the reason why the finish, well, the, the, the finish was flat because the finish was flat. It was executed poorly. It looked awkward. It just didn't, ugh, I didn't like it. But the reason there wasn't a lot of crowd reactions is there's no story here. This is just Masahiro Chono coming over from Japan, you know, for the NWO in Japan. The, the only story, the takeaway, is that NWO is now expanding to Japan, which technically and in, in reality it was. But the, the match itself, especially for an opener, because I like to open a show as hot as possible, this did not live up to its expectations. And it, it really, and again, looking back at it, now I didn't think about this then, but again, I have a little bit more experience now. I would have loved to have seen a more Japanese-style match here than an American style. Chono was really working Jericho-style. It might have been a little bit more interesting if Jericho was working more traditional Japanese-style. That would have made the match feel different, and the energy might have been different as a result. But overall, I just thought it was flat. What do you think of Nick Patrick's job here? Uh, he's our referee for all the matches, I think. Uh, he's not wearing the traditional stripes. He's got black jeans on, an NWO shirt, and a, a backwards NWO baseball hat. What do you think of uh, Nick here? Uh, good idea gone bad. You know, it's just it was too much. Again, you know, sometimes the art of great storytelling is in nuance and subtlety. <laughs> there was there, there wasn't a trace of nuance and subtlety in anything that we did here. So it was it was too much. I was tired of it after the first three minutes. Next up. Uh, Meltzer would write the beauty contest started with Eric Bischoff's teenage protege, Jeff Katz, making his television debut in a basically impossible situation. The idea was to spoof beauty contests, but it was so lame. The crowd began chanting for Deborah McMichael. When I covered this show, uh, a year or two ago with, um, Tony Schiavone, he could not wait to tell us all that, uh, Behind the scenes, Jeff Katz was sort of referred to as your boy wonder. Uh, what the fuck? Chat me up. What was the, who was Jeff Katz? What was his relationship to you? Um, what do you got on Jeff Katz? Jeff Katz was, he was a young kid. I think he might've been 24 at the time. Um, he lived in Los Angeles. His father, I believe was an executive at new line cinema. Jeff had been around the entertainment business for the better part of his life. And Zane Bresloff was really high on Jeff. I don't know how Zane knew of Jeff. I don't know how they became friends, but they were. And Zane, you know, just kind of rode me pretty consistently about giving this kid a try. So um, I gave him a try. And he was a, he was a huge wrestling fan. He was decent on camera. Um, he understood television. And he was passionate about the business. So I gave him a shot. 
how that made him my protege. I'll, you know, that I don't know. I never talked to him outside of television. I never hung out with him. I never didn't bring him to my house for dinner. <laughs> didn't spend any time, you know, giving him my point of view or philosophy on the wrestling world. Uh, it was just a guy I gave a shot to. Next up is the match. I can't wait to bust you on. It's a Mexican death match between Ray trailer and Hugh Morris in Iowa. <laughs> uh, now to sort of be uh, fully transparent, Conan is the original plan here and they even start to introduce Conan, but he's not actually going to be here. He had some sort of scheduling conflict in Mexico, wasn't able to make it. So Hugh Morris is subbing instead. The rules of the match are, uh, you're going to continue until one man can't answer the bell and yeah, Bubba runs him over with a fucking motorcycle. I love that. And that I loved it. Of course, the next day, Hugh Morris walks out on nitro and everything's fine. Yeah, I mean, but if you go back and look at the bump he took, it wasn't you know, it wasn't as hard as half of the other bumps that Hugh Morris would take. Well, but in wrestling, I mean, he got hit. He got hit by a motorcycle going 15 miles an hour, and he was okay afterwards. No, listen, that makes total sense because this company taught me you can get pushed off a goddamn building and win the world title an hour later. See, there you go. Why is this even a question? <laughs> so let's move on. Let's move on. Half a star. Uh, Pay per view. Bubba Ray trailer and uh, Hugh Morris. On pay-per-view in a Mexican. Why, 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 would, why would you not? Why would you not be excited about giving you know two guys who are kind of in the middle of the card a chance to shine on a pay-per-view? You're right. Let's go to the next one. Jeff Jarrett and Michael <laughs> Wall Street. Can't believe this is real. Uh, it gets a dud rating. They go nine minutes and twenty-two seconds. So so far we've had eighteen minutes filled up with Ray Trailer, Hugh Morris, Jeff Jarrett, and Michael Wall Street collectively mm-hmm. between both matches, both of them. We have half a star rating. <laughs> well, I mean, like you should be, you should be sued for this. Like I, I need next time I see you, I'm going to kick you in the nuts and get $20 off you. <laughs> I, I got it coming. I, I agree. When I saw this, I had completely put it out of my mind. Well, don't worry. First, first of all, Jeff Jarrett, yeah. who the f- fuck ever came up with that outfit now i'm gonna take responsibility for allowing him to show up in front of a camera that was working wearing that ridiculously heat-seeking fucking dick dancing outfit that he was wearing chippendale fucking shit it was horrible and how the hell someone with jeff's experience here's a part that cracks me up Someone with Jeff's experience, you know, second generation or third generation or 20th generation, where the fuck he supposedly is, right, with with all of his experience and knowledge, shows up in an arena as a babyface in something that would get his ass kicked if he wore it anywhere else. It was, it was a heat-seeking gimmick. And, I, I, you know, I'm looking at the match, and I'm going, okay, this is pretty fucking horrible. And he said, why did I put this on pay-per-view? And I was asking myself some of the same questions you're probably going to ask me throughout the rest of this. But the thing that stood out in my mind was what a fucking horrible choice for wardrobe Jeff Jarrett made. His mother should have dressed him. Somebody should have dressed him. He should have hired a wardrobe consultant. Why he would wear that is beyond me. Now, enough about Jeff Jeff Jarrett. The match was kind of blah. 
there was no real story behind it. There was no real story behind any of this stuff. That's the hard part about it. There was no real story. It was designed to get the NWO over, to separate the two brands, you know, to establish the fact that WCW was struggling. They were the underdogs. NWO had all the power. That was that was the narrative that we were trying to establish throughout this entire pay-per-view. We weren't paying attention to individual stories. But there's no excuse for this match being on a pay-per-view. No shit, you weren't paying attention. How about this for what's next? Like, no, no, oh, come on. Don't be so brutal. I was pay- I cared. Look, you can uh, you can make a decision and and have that decision be fucking horrible, but it doesn't mean you don't care. Just be careful. I mean, you've acknowledged that you didn't produce the announcers. I mean, this and and didn't look at the shadow boxes and, and had a Mexican death match with two white dudes in Iowa. Move on. And ran a guy over with a fucking motorcycle <laughs> and he showed up the next day. Like he was fine. Not even like a bandage. But anyway, um, after this, you guys continue the miss NWO contest in the senior division. And Jeff Katz asked a woman on a motorcycle, what part of her body did she feel would help her win miss NWO? She says her feet. He goes over to another woman on a motorcycle and asks how she's doing. She can't hear him. So then he asked, what would she use to, uh, what she use on Marcus Alexander's biceps. And she says, how would I explain this? And he says, well, the miracle ear is not turned up. Let's forget about it. This is a horrible train wreck of a segment and it's live on pay-per-view. I mean, the answer is no one, but who is, uh, who produced this? Is there somebody who's like, okay, ladies, here's what we're going to walk through. Clearly that didn't happen, but who fucking should have. Uh, probably Woody Kears, possibly Neil Pruitt. Um, where'd you find these ladies at? I didn't find them. Um, I don't know if that would have been David Crockett or somebody that we would have had locally. Don't you I, I didn't, I didn't go out looking for them. I can assure you. Yeah. We know where you found them. No, but uh, I, but I did, you know, in fairness to whoever did find them, I specifically said, do not bring back any hot looking women. I want, I want trucker women. I want, I want real women. I want the women you'd find here in, you know, Cedar Rapids. Don't come back here with, you know, five or six chicks you found at a a strip club. That's exactly what I didn't want. I'm just going to move on. Marcus Alexander Bagwell is going to pin Scotty Riggs. Yeah. Scotty Riggs on pay-per-view 13 minutes and 51 seconds. Meltzer would write Riggs is so not over that he's under. Uh, and I know Scotty listens. Shout out to you, Scotty. Uh, Bagwell is a very good worker in his new role, but Riggs is a zero by himself. Sorry about that. Scotty finished saw the debut of the buff blockbuster, which is basically coming off the top rope into a neck breaker which was a really cool finisher star and a quarter. Now Bagwell is a few weeks into the heel turn here. Uh, I guess he turned probably at the end of November. So maybe two months he's back in the NWO. He's been here for six months. This is our six years. Really first time he's been a heel though. He's always been the white meat baby face. What were you thinking about this new coat of paint on buff Bagwell? Uh, you know, buff had buff was such an unlikable person in real life and and it's it's hard to explain you know 
Buff was always trying. He was trying to be funny. He was trying to be entertaining. He would try to be a nice guy. He he would he he tried so hard, but he was I can't draw an analogy in another character, but he's like that kid in high school that, you know, wants so hard to be the class clown that he never stops trying stupid jokes or tricks or obnoxious shit. And that's kind of the way Buff was as a baby face. And I thought, why not take advantage of his natural character? Because he's in that naturally. I mean, even if you see him, you know, at a show today, it's all about me. I mean, the entire world revolves around Mark Bagwell. Still does to this day. If you have a conversation with Mark Bagwell today, it is no different than the conversation you would have had with him 25 years ago or 20 years ago. And I just wanted to take advantage of that natural kind of heat that he would get and make it work for him. You know, unfortunately, and again, looking back, I didn't see it then. I wish I would have. I wish I would have had a better eye then than than I did. But I'm looking back at it now, and you know, between the you know plucking his eyebrows and the you know he had this huge he had the huge metrosexual thing going on before metrosexual was a term. But he was all about that. You know, every hair was in place and the calf implants and you know, it's, it was so ridiculous. And I, I wish I would have forced him to dress down. You know what I mean? To be a little bit more, I hate to use the term street, but to be a little more organic and a little more real and, a, and less, you know, Chippendale. He's another one, you know, him and Jeff Jarrett could have probably toured Vegas together. It, 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 it was, he was so Chippendale. It just reeked in it over it. it it overshadowed everything else about his character, in my opinion. And it, it kept him from really getting to to a level that he possibly could have gotten to because he was a talented guy. He could do a promo, and he wasn't bad in the ring. He was better than not bad. He was good in the ring. But he just never really found his personality, and, and I didn't find it for him. They continue the Miss NWO interviews here, and Katz asked a woman if she would dress in sexy lingerie for Vincent. That's right, Virgil. She said she would. Uh, and then she, uh, we had a chance to hear from another woman, which she helped Scott Norton with his flashing problem. That's his nickname is flash. Get it. She said she would. This is all in pay-per-view next up. Scott Norton beats diamond Dallas page by count out nine minutes and 39 seconds. Sting shows up in the balcony, but that was the extent of his involvement on this show. And we'll talk about that in the main event, but he is at least here and, uh, eventually we see the NWOB team come in, which is Bagwell, Bubba, Vince, and Wall Street. And they give Paige another NWO shirt. He rips up the shirt, gives Norton a diamond cutter, punches all the guys, and then runs into the crowd, which then allows Nick Patrick to announce Norton as the winner by count out half a star. What'd you think of the match, Eric? Like you, Conrad, I dug the finish and sometimes I hate to keep using analogies, but you know, there's been a number of movies I think I've been to in the last couple of years where the movie itself was kind of eh, so, so, but the ending was so good. You kind of forgot about the rest of it. That's kind of the way I felt about this. When I watched it back, you know, I, I thought Norton had a good match with DDP. Actually, I thought DDP made Norton look really good. DDP was really, as I said earlier, <clears throat> as we started this DDP was really coming into his own, not only as a character, but he was gaining more and more and more confidence inside of the ring. And it was evident here. And I thought the match, because Scott's a hard guy to work with. You know, he doesn't have a lot of, uh, he, he didn't have a, a lot of arsenal, you know, 
to work with. He's a big guy, powerful guy. Um, he could sell, but not great. <laughs> uh, he, he, you know, he certainly couldn't do a lot of high flying or technical wrestling. So there was a, you know, limited repertoire. But I think Paige got the most out of him, and vice versa. I think you know, Norton did a good job as well. But the match, except for the finish, was pretty mundane. There was no, there was no real excitement in it until the end. But I really do think the end of this, the finish of this, because it advanced the story and simultaneously advanced Paige's character. And I think when you can have a match, regardless of what the first 85% of it might have looked like, but at the end of it, if you've really advanced the character and you've advanced the story, I think you've hit a home run. So from a producer point of view, I'd give it a 7 or an 8 on a scale of 1 to 10. But I can see from a wrestling fan's point of view, who's not really concerned about whether we're advancing a story or advancing a character, if all they want to to do is be entertained and fulfilled by a match, then this probably came up short because there wasn't a lot of story there other than NWO trying to recruit Paige. That that part of the story was executed perfectly, but the match itself, eh, until the finish. The Steiners beat Scott Hall and Kevin Nash supposedly to win the WCW tag titles and Meltzer would say it's better than you think. He gave it two and a quarter stars. The finish saw Scott Hall give the outsider edge, uh, after a ref bump, but then Rick would bulldog Scott Hall off the top rope. And then Scott covered him. Randy Anderson, who was actually watching the show from the fourth row of the crowd, uh, hops the guardrail, jumps in the ring and makes the count and gives the Steiners the belts. Pretty interesting finish here. I like that. We got to see some shots of WCW guys in the crowd. Uh, what'd you think? I liked it actually, and it doesn't. It didn't surprise me when I saw it back. You know, Hall and Nash had a lot of respect for the signers, and vice versa. They may not have gotten along all the time. They may have had their issues, especially with Scott, constantly trying to stir people up and fuck with people. But inside of the ring, you know, I know, and especially with Kevin Nash and in the signers, there was a tremendous amount of respect, and you would expect. I expected then, and and I saw it now watching it back. They did the best they could to make each other look great. Um, they worked hard for each other and it, it was a decent match. And just like the finish of the previous match with DDP and Norton, I thought again, knowing what the intent was and the intent being, we had Nick Patrick as our heel referee. Now we've got Randy Anderson established, especially here and reinforced here and advanced here as the WCW, you know, counterpart to Nick Patrick. I thought that that was effective. And the controversy over whether the belts were going to be, you know, given back, uh, I, th- I thought, you know, it was a good hook and would have motivated people to find out what we're going to do the following night. So I liked it. I liked it too. And I liked the next match even better. This is one you should go out of your way to see, uh, Eddie Guerrero and six have a ladder match here for the United States belt. It's an excellent four-star match. According to the observer, I thought it was tremendous. They go 13 minutes and 48 seconds. Eddie gets the win. So now he is in possession of the U S title. Uh, Meltzer would say, uh, this was an excellent match. Although one wouldn't have known it since the announcers absolutely killed the match. Bischoff spent more time trying to get over that. He knows karate and that Scott Hall invented ladder matches than build drama into a damn good match. Most people didn't even recognize this as anything more than an average match when it was really a great effort by both four stars. 
To finish these both at the top of the ladder, each come down holding the belt. Guerrero manages to hit six with the belt and takes the bump to the floor while Guerrero climbs down with the belt. What'd you think? I thought it was pretty exciting. You know, WCW here to four wasn't really known for the best gimmick type matches. Um, they were usually sloppy, uh, sometimes horrible in their execution. This was the antithesis of that. This was really good. This was really fast paced. Both of these guys did a good, good job. Um, what I was trying to put over, not myself, but as a play by play guy who, by the way, actually is a black or was a black belt and spent, you know, a decade or more in martial arts. I was taking, I was using my knowledge to put over Sean Waltman, not trying to put myself over, but Dave through his fucked up color, colored glasses wouldn't have recognized that. I really did put Sean over and his real knowledge of martial arts. And if you go back and listen to my commentary, <clears throat> I talk about how oftentimes people talk about, you know, the fact that they're martial artists or in, in the case of this particular show, they took three months worth of karate classes at the local YMCA and then run around telling everybody know, they know karate until they get their ass kicked because they don't really know shit. And I use that to try to put over Sean because Sean's use of martial arts um, were legitimate in the ring. If you look at the move that Sean did, and it surprised me in, in real – in fact, it surprised me again seeing it. Sean executed – now he missed. He was slightly off target, which is understandable since he was standing on a fucking ladder with another guy. But when he jumped and did what's called technically a sidekick or a jump sidekick, he missed Eddie just by a, a touch. Um but the kick itself, from a technical point of view, was almost flawless. And it really did impress the fuck out of me. It, it, it impressed the hell out of me watching it back. It was a great match. If you've never seen this one, we're going to dump on this show. We have been consistently. Go back and watch this one. I'm not going to say it's WrestleMania with Razor and Sean, but very, very good. Now, what's not very good is what's coming up. The Miss NWO contest. Here we are. It's the end of it. Thankfully, uh, they announce each of the final 10 uh, contestants and you list their measurements. Meltzer would say it's safe to say that had never been done before on a wrestling pay-per-view. And then uh, you come down from the broadcast table and said it was a tie. And then he whispered something into the contestants ears and declares the winner to be Miss De Miss Becky. And, uh, you make out with her not once, but twice, and then declare it's good to be King Meltzer would say the sight of Bischoff French kissing an overweight mid fifties woman to no cheers, even fewer laughs and a lot of gagging around the country. By this time, the show was about as much fun to watch as three hours of somebody masturbating. In fact, I'm not sure that isn't what we're watching. Rumor and innuendo has it that Dave would probably buy that pay-per-view. Um, I don't know what to say, you know, that I, that I haven't already said. It was designed to be the exact opposite of what people would expect the NWO to do. Everybody, including the Dave Meltzers of the world, would have probably booked the hottest woman they could find. I wanted to go the other way. And I did. And it didn't work. So there you go. You know, like I said earlier, anybody that's ever been in the business of actually producing television or actually f for a living of uh, having to be creative that will say to you, they've never 
you know, misjudged the audience um, or, or came up with bad shit um, is a liar or they've never been there. And Dave, you know, sure, clearly falls in the category. He's never done it. All he's ever done is talk about what other people do. Uh, which is an easy thing to do, but in this case, it didn't work. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try to pretend it did. You know, one of those people that Dave des- described as, you know, around the world that was gagging was my wife. By the way, you know, my kids were like, "Dad, what the fuck?" They didn't say that naturally, but it was. I'm sure they were thinking it. Um, but look, I tried it. I wanted to do something different. You know, it, and the idea, by the way, for this, be careful how I set this up. The idea for this came to me based on a story that a friend of mine told me once about how when he was in college, uh, he and his buddies on the weekends would have a contest to see who could bring home the the most hideous beast (laughs) for the weekend. And that's, that's where the idea came from. You know, it, it, it was, that was the genesis of that idea. (laughs) Sad as it may be. Could you be any more unlikable today? I don't think so. Dude, uh, I, what the hell? I was making TV, <laughs> you know? It was it's just TV. It was fun. It was entertainment, you know? Have we not seen horrible shit just like this um, in other genres? Oh, yeah. You know, in movies, of course we did. That was just no different. This is just making TV. You just gave me the old, if your friend jumped off a bridge, would you? But either way, Hulk Hogan and the Giant are out next. It's our main event. Thank God. They got a no decision 11 minutes in. So your main event that you paid money for on pay-per-view, no decision. Hogan comes down with uh, some Dallas Cowboys, George T, Greg Donaldson, Nate Newton. And uh, Meltzer's pretty critical of this match. He says things like uh, Hogan for the first time since 1990 actually hit on his foot on the face spot. And Hogan tried a few wrestling spots, but they were done in slow-mo about the speed. A few throw punches while underwater. And then of course, towards the end, we know what's coming. You run to the ring and give Hogan a guitar and he destroys it over giants back. And Meltzer would say giant survived a fall off Kobo arena, but couldn't stand up to a gimmick guitar to the back. Hall and Nash then showed up and pulled down giants pants, showing everyone his enlarged, butt, while they spray painted NWO for life on his back. Well, this makes next year's awards easy enough. Negative star and a half. Oof. Let's start from the top. How did the Cowboys get involved here? I have no idea. I honestly don't. And I mean, it wouldn't have been the time of year that they'd be in town for anything, especially in Cedar Rapids. So I I have no idea how the fuck they ended up as a part of this show. It must have been, it would have come up spontaneously because it wasn't something that I, you know, had to sign off on from a financial point of view. So clearly they, they knew somebody and were in town for some reason and they ended up on the show. So as a reminder in September, the giant runs to the ring during the WCW NWO brawl and starts to attack the WCW guys, therefore joining the NWO fast forward to November though. And he actually wins the world war three pay-per-view. So he's supposed to get a title shot. And when he asked for that title shot, they sort of push it down. And eventually it's time to attack Piper the day after Starcade and wear him out. And they want him to choke slam him. And he refuses. 
So Hogan gets mad at the giant, slaps him, attacks him. And now here we go. We've got this match set up. It's actually their second time on pay-per-view. The first one may be another show you're familiar with Halloween Havoc 95, Kobo hall or Kobo arena. An interesting couple of matches here. This one is not good. What'd you think of the main event here? If I was a wrestling fan and watching it, I would be disappointed. Um, as a producer, I looked at it and again, start out with the fact that giant has had a lot of limitations in terms of what he, not only what he could do, cause he was an athlete, he could do a lot of things, but when you're booking a guy like Paul, this, and I've talked about this before, and I, 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 I submit that the WWE has had the same exact problem. You know, I like Paul white. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Paul white, but Paul white's never become a star in, in, in the world of w, WWE, where they refer to all talent as superstars. Then I guess he's a superstar, but in terms of, you know, headlining pay-per-views, building the company around, being the face of the company, maintaining a you know top spot in merchandise sales, you know, being you know a go-to guy for ratings, you know, in any category that you want to use to quantify a star, Paul White's never been able to check any of them, and it's not because he's not a great guy, and it's not because of anything other than the fact that he's fucking seven foot tall and four hundred pounds, and from a psychology point of view, from a storytelling point of view, there's only a certain amount of of, of believable ways that a guy like him can sell. And once you've done all those, you can't do them again over and over and over again. Paul, and he was green. On top of all of that, he was a very green guy. So given the limitations with Paul White and given the obvious limitations with Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan was never a Shawn Michaels in terms of his technical, you know, his approach to the ring technically. He never had to be. He was a big character. He wasn't a, a, a Dave Meltzer four-star, you know, Tokyo Dome main event Japan match, although he he did those early in his career. Um, Hulk was busted up by this point. You know, he was still, you know, a guy who was six foot six or whatever he was and close to 300 pounds and was beat the fuck up his hips, his knees and everything else. So there was a limited amount of things that he could do. So given the limitations of both principles in this main event, and looking at the finish, go back and look at the finish. There were people throwing garbage in the ring. They were hot. And by the way, let me let me eliminate the smart-ass Dave Meltzer you know, comment that, to come. Um, they weren't throwing garbage in the ring because they were sick of the match or they hated the pay-per-view. They were throwing garbage in the ring because there was heat. So if you go back and listen to it, if you don't believe me, just listen to them. And it wasn't go-home heat. It wasn't fuck you, this is horrible heat. This was storyline-driven, character-driven heat. And the end of the match, not as much as Paige and Norton, but the end of the match, to me, kind of mitigated what the action that we saw in the ring and, and, and the lack of, I guess, polished, crisp, devastating wrestling that you would hope to see in a main event. I understand that. But you had a, a character in Hulk Hogan and a green 400-pound giant <laughs> in the giant. And, you know, that just brings a certain amount of limitation to it. Let's talk about, um, the, the decision not to use sting here. The fans want sting in this main event. I think since we showed him earlier, everybody really expects him here. He doesn't do anything in hindsight. Do you think you should have done something 
with staying Absolutely here. not. Absolutely not. In hindsight, I would do that one. Look, there's a lot of things in hindsight I would have changed about this show. That wouldn't have been one of them. Story, anticipation, reality, surprise, and action. Anticipation of those five elements, I think anticipation is the biggest one, the most important one. Anticipate, really, anticipation and story kind of go hand in hand, but we were. I wanted to build anticipation. I wanted the – that was my dog, Nikki, agreeing with me. I wanted the, the audience to just crave to the point where they almost demanded Sting appear, and you can't achieve that without holding him back. You can't give him Sting at every critical moment on every show and every pay-per-view and have them really desire him to finally come back and get revenge. It's not possible. The only way, at least it wasn't possible for me, let's put it that way. The only way that I could have built the anticipation that I wanted to achieve with Sting in the storyline was to hold him back as long as I possibly could. I made that decision going into it and you know, finish, finish of Starcade aside, um, it worked probably better than anything that we've seen in wrestling in two decades. Let me ask you, Kevin Sullivan, was he the guy who would have been the, uh, the booker for the finishes? And I mean, would he have put together this show? This does feel like a show that's designed to get a lot of heat. And you've told us before that he was a heat booker. Is this Kevin, does this have Kevin Nash's or Kevin Sullivan's fingerprints on it? No, no. At, 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 at this time, Kevin was kind of in and out. Um, he had his own personal issues. And Kevin was involved, but at this was about the point where I started overseeing more than I had previously. Um, I still didn't have any confidence, you know, to be the guy creating all of the stories and, 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 and all of that. But Terry Taylor was very involved. Um, Kevin was involved, but not as the guy. A lot of these finishes, to really get to the heart of your question, a lot of these finishes, um, we knew what the story was. The agents, you know, got involved. The, you know, the talent themselves helped come up with some of these finishes. Again, we would tell them, look, this is what we want. This is what we need to achieve at the end of this match and allow the agents and the talent to go work that out. But Kevin wasn't in that kind of lead creative position that he had been previously because of some of the personal issues that he was dealing with. Let's talk about the next night on nitro, because this is a pretty memorable segment. Um, you're in Des Moines, Iowa, 3,970 fans, $63,000 gate. And it opens with a scene where you bring out referee, Randy Anderson and have him explain what happened. And then you fire him. Um, it's been brought up that before that, that he had been sick and the whole deal, but you fired him. It turns into a cool angle, I guess, because eventually he comes back out with his kids. I think the following week. And ask for his job back. This Randy Anderson thing obviously has uh, resonated with a lot of people because it felt real, it felt cruel. It really got you over as a heel in a major way. And unfortunately, we lost Randy nearly 17 years ago now from testicular cancer. Chat me up. What do you remember about the the firing of referee Randy Anderson the next week? Well, it, it was when he came. You know, firing him was one thing. You know, that was, that was good. It was good television. It was a good story. Uh, it was good character development. Was, there was a lot of great, good things about that particular, 
you know, firing Randy Anderson angle. The best part of it was when he came back and asked for his job back. And I told his kids, you know, I looked down at his kids and said, tell your daddy he's still fired. That was magic. Absolute fucking magic. So magical and so believable to your point earlier setting this up that I got a call from Harvey Schiller a couple days later or the next day when we got back, called me up to his office, which he very rarely did, by the way. Called me up to his office and said, Eric, we need to talk. So I went up and, you know, hey, Harvey, what's what's going on? He goes, Eric, Turner, public relations, his, they're all up my ass because people in Randy Anderson's community, in his church in particular, saw what happened, believed it to be true, and were in their own way petitioning Turner Broadcasting to fire me for it. Because it was that well executed, not just by me, but by Randy and his kids and his wife. I mean, that whole scene was so fucking believable and it was such great television that so many people believed it to the extent where they took action the next day. And that's magic, brother. I don't care who you are. When you produce television, it gets people to react like that to a storyline, particularly inside of a world where they know everything is fake and everything is scripted. But we broke that paradigm and made them believe it was actually happening. I'm telling you that, you know, that's some Golden Globe shit right there. The main event of that Nitro was another Hogan Giant title match. It goes just under three minutes before Hall and Nash interfere for the DQ. This time, as they're all beating up the giant, Luger makes the save and the show goes off the air. The result is Raw gets a 2.2, Nitro gets a 3.6. Um, pretty interesting time in WCW. One of the things I've always wanted to ask logistically is I know you guys wanted to avoid running head to head with the Royal Rumble, which is the week prior, and you wanted to avoid running against the Super Bowl, which is the next day. Why not try to run this show a week before the Rumble? I mean, you could argue that that show was too close to Starcade, but it does feel like a weird placement here. Do you think that you lost any audience by having this show on a Saturday as opposed to yeah, a Sunday? I, I, I guarantee you that we lost 20, 25% minimum by having it on a Saturday. There's a reason that pay-per-views traditionally wrestling pay-per-views traditionally happened on Sunday. And when you condition your audience and your market, you know, to certain things and then you change them from a scheduling point of view, it's always it's always a gamble, it's always a risk, and typically you end up losing a certain amount of audience. It's why, you know, television shows, when you, whatever your favorite show is, if you, you know, if you watch it on Tuesday night, you've been watching it on Tuesday night for six months or a year or whatever. And then all of a sudden it moves to Thursday night. Yeah, that's a bad sign because if a network is willing to risk moving a, an established show to a brand new night, what they're really suggesting is that they're willing to risk losing that show. Because if it's a, if, if it's, if you go back at, you know, this, during this period of time, friends was like the juggernaut, right? Thursday night, it was must-see TV on, on NBC because of primarily um, Friends. Not for one second, for any reason, would have NBC have moved that show to Tuesday night. You just don't do that. But we were forced to. And there was no easy answer. There was no good solution. There was just varying degrees of a bad choice. And who knows? Maybe it would have been better if we would have moved it, you know, before the Royal Rumble, maybe we would have gotten slaughtered even more. There's no way of knowing. Uh, 
you know, you, you sometimes are faced with a, a, a decision when you don't have any ideal choices and you make the best choice you can. But I think to answer your question, we probably lost 20, 25% of our audience, our pay-per-view audience. Here's the result. You guys did, um, 117,000 buys, $1.31 million in revenue. Meltzer would say, which was basically half of what Starcade did. So it was a huge flop by that standard as well. That can be attributed perhaps to the idea that fans don't want to pay twenty seven ninety five to see what they believe to be screw jobs. And after that Robin Hood fiasco, horrible match, horrible ending, it didn't help that the pay-per-view had a Hogan giant main event. Bottom line is the NWO is really over to the most serious fans who buy ringside tickets and merchandise, but its appeal to the casual masses isn't nearly what people thought. Was that your takeaway from this show? No. This was a brand new pay-per-view. Brand new. Anytime WWF introduced a brand new pay-per-view, it didn't typically do as well as the more established pay-per-views. This was a brand new pay-per-view. And, you know, Dave's opinion, and he's welcome to his opinions. You know, he had, he had a strong opinion about Hulk Hogan long before Hulk Hogan got into WCW. You know, he has a strong opinion of what he as an individual likes and appreciates in a wrestling match, which is fine. You know, I've said this before. You know, if it wasn't for, for the fact that he, he, he's such a negative prick, I'd probably get along with him from a wrestling point of view, because I agree with a lot of what he says in terms of what I personally like, but in terms of what the broader audience likes, I think if anybody's disconnected with the audience then, and probably still today, it's Dave Meltzer. He doesn't really understand the broader audience. He doesn't really understand the television industry, even though he writes about it and he uses terminology and he uses words and he references things that are out in the public domain to make himself sound like he knows what the fuck he's talking about. He really doesn't understand the challenge of appealing to a broader audience. The hardcore audience, yeah, he knows them. He's got them down He because he's created many of them and he is one of them. So I give him that. But – in terms of the broader appeal, whether it was because of Hogan and Giant or whatever the fuck his, you know, his take on why it wasn't successful, I disagree with it. It wasn't successful because, A, we, we did it on a Saturday night. B, we were coming off of Starcade. People were a little tired. There was a Royal Rumble coming up. The, and, and, and I think at the end of it all, it really came down to this was a brand new pay-per-view with no, no real storyline. That's why it didn't do big numbers. This was a this was a pay-per-view intentionally designed to get over a story and get over NWO as a character and to act as a platform from which we could catapult into future stories. That was the sole intention of this pay-per-view. And it fell short compared to other pay-per-views. But other pay-per-views like Starcade, you know, referencing the the, the 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 genius that is Dave Meltzer, Starcade was a culmination of some great storylines and great storytelling. This wasn't. So one would expect if you don't have story, you're probably not going to compel people to really want to see the end of it. Well, I'm glad we're finally at the end of this show. The Wrestling Observer Raider poll had the fans rate the show. Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Thumbs in the middle got 1.1%. Thumbs up got 1.1%. Thumbs down got a resounding 97.8% thumbs down. Where would you rate it? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. I'd have to give it a thumbs down. You know, I, I started to 
go back to, yeah, but this was the intention and this is what we were supposed to do. And, and all that is true. But at the end of the day, when you ask a question like, how would you rate it? I have to look at it from a consumer's point of view, from a fan's point of view, from a consumer's point of view. This, I, it would have not lived up to even marginal expectations, you know, so I'll put a period at the end of that sentence. Now in, you know, parentheses, from a concept point of view and, and in terms of what we were trying to achieve, I'd give it a thumbs in the middle. It, it, in either case, it could have been so much better. Well, I hated the show. Follow me on Twitter if you haven't already. Uh, hey, hey, it's Conrad. I'd be proud to have your follow. And I'll be proud to see you here next week on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? Can <laughs> you pay me more? Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.